listeners, welcome back. You're listening to episode six of Kaya's English podcast. And in this episode, we will talk with Agata, who is my friend. And Agata, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for finding time for us and for agreeing to speak with us. I'm so happy to have you here today. Agata is a researcher and she is researching about startups in Japan and India. She is currently teaching at a university in Japan. Agata is originally from Poland. We met at Oxford University, I think six, seven, maybe eight years ago, a very long time ago, when Agata was doing her master's at St. Anthony's College at Oxford University. And I was also studying there, and we were in the same college. Thank you so much for being here, Agata. And first of all, please introduce yourself. Um, tell us about you and your background. All right. So thank you very much, Kaya, for the invitation. It's my pleasure uh, to be here. So, um, yeah, as you said, I uh, come from Poland, uh, from the city of Krakow. Um, and uh, currently I live in Japan. However, in the mean meantime, uh, I lived also for uh, several years, about six years uh, in the UK. Uh, so these three countries are the countries I am uh, quite uh, strongly uh, involved with. Um, and uh, my background in Poland, uh, well, Perhaps um, what I can say is that, yeah, I had many interests when I was uh, a youth <laughs> uh, growing, growing up in Krakow and uh, part of them were more adventurous and part of them were more uh, academic. Uh, so I really enjoyed uh, like outdoors, horse riding, um, hiking. Um, I was in Girl Scouts as well. Um, did a lot of um, yeah skiing and various excursions with friends and family. Um, and uh, on the other end of the spectrum, I um, really liked um, studying especially history. Um, and while studying history, um, because I was uh, in Poland, in Europe, the perspective that was offered on uh, the history both at school and later at my university was very much like Eurocentric. However, I gradually developed interest in like global history, uh, also through traveling, through all the outdoors activities. Uh, I always had the interest, had an interest in um, the whole world, and I felt it was really a shame uh, that we were mostly focused on. Uh, only like European um, perspective on the world. Uh, so that led me from uh, studying and competing in various uh, like inter-school competitions in history, uh, then to studying uh, more uh, like comparative cultural studies, uh, global history, and eventually uh, led me uh, to um, specialize in management uh, also from this kind of international perspective because as you said um, I am currently um, a researcher and a an university teacher uh, specializing in uh, startup uh, startups uh, startup ecosystems um, and organization theory uh, where I look into the cases from various um, comparative contexts such as uh, Japan and India. 
uh, yeah, so I guess that would be a brief introduction, kind of linking a little bit of my background and interest in uh, Poland, then to my later life in Oxford and currently in Japan. But yeah, it's quite difficult to <laughs> smoothly connect all the dots. Because you've been through a lot of things. You've done a lot of stuff. You've been to many places. Yeah, a lot of time has passed. <laughs> <laughs> you are not old <laughs> yeah I'm not but uh, yeah already uh, some experiences um, yeah there has been many experiences in my life mm -hmm. of various kinds so mm -hmm. uh, and I rarely uh, think in such a kind of linear manner about uh, how exactly all these steps from the background connect to today. So sometimes I have to do that, but yeah, uh, in everyday life, you just don't think about that. You just mm -hmm. live your life, try to live mindfully in the present. Mm, that's <laughs> so. very wise. Mm -hmm. And Agata, you said that you were always interested in history from a global perspective. Um, how many countries or which countries have you been to in terms of not just living, but for travel? Oh, um, actually, I don't know. I think maybe I've counted that. But to be, to be honest, I don't remember the number. I have been to many countries in Europe, not all of them, but quite a few. Uh, and then um, some countries in Northern Africa, like Morocco, Tunisia. Um, yeah, and then... Uh, and several countries in Asia and briefly also in North America. So I don't have any personal experience. Oh no, actually I do a little bit. I've been to Caribbean uh, in like Central America, but um, I don't have experience with, with like the South America or, uh, or with Australia or New Zealand also. I don't have any experience other than that. Yeah, a little bit of uh, the other continents. I, I see. Mm -hmm. And how many languages do you speak? Mm, right. So, well, my native tongue is uh, Polish, and then uh, next one is English because, well, it's necessary for the work. <laughs> uh, and uh, now living in Japan, of course, I use Japanese also uh, in my daily life and a little bit in my teaching. Um, other than that, I have also studied uh, Spanish, of which I have some passive knowledge, but because I'm not using it and I haven't really have a chance to speak much, uh, I mostly just understand it and can read, but yeah, unfortunately, it's not like a proper working knowledge. Um, and then, well, in my life, I had a little bit of lessons from other languages, uh, like at school, some primary school, some German lessons or uni, some Latin lessons or Chinese lessons. So yeah, I had a little bit of contact with some other languages, but um, I would say I know three languages like actively and one passively. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And your English is very good. Obviously you're working in English, you're teaching in English, you're researching in English. As a native speaker of Polish, how did you learn English? And do you have any tips for people learning English as a second language? Sure, so uh, like uh, most of my uh, peers whose families could afford that, 
uh, I was sent to extra English lessons uh, when I was a kid. Uh, the English lessons at, at normal school were usually considered to be not enough uh, to actually master the language. So I was going maybe like twice a week uh, to some English extra English classes uh, for many years. Um, and that was useful, but I'm not sure if I, I was able to really um, read freely or, or talk freely in English until, until later when I started to, uh, first of all, I was a keen uh, fan of fantasy literature. And uh, during that time, Harry Potter books were being published, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. the final books. And um, I really wanted to know what's going on in those books. <laughs> uh, and I didn't want to wait for the whole year for the Polish translation to uh, be published. Mm -hmm. So that was my motivation number one, which really helped me. Uh, to actively pursue reading longer texts in English, uh, you know, my own will. Mm -hmm. uh, so reading Harry Potter in English. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but specifically, I'm not sure if I would have been that keen if not for the fact that I had a best friend who uh, used to go to American school in Krakow mm -hmm. and uh, thus she uh, knew English very well even as a child and she was reading the Harry Potter books <laughs> when they were published just even the early ones uh, mm -hmm. without waiting for Polish translation and then she was telling me all the plot and spoiling the story <laughs> so, so I felt I cannot wait to read those books because she will uh, she will tell me everything and I will have no surprise in in and delight you know of, uh -huh. of reading a story uh, that I don't know. Uh, yeah, I remember that one once she uh, read the Prisoner of Azkaban mm -hmm. uh, right after it was published and then told me all the plot twists. <laughs> <laughs> I was quite mad and then I already bought the Goblet of Fire so the book number four once it was published in English but then my English was too poor and, and I really couldn't understand much I was struggling a lot you know with, uh, with dictionary trying to translate every word mm -hmm. <laughs> Some yeah. description of Voldemort's house or whatever <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah only after I, yeah, only after my English improved slightly um, and I was still very much keen to read the books because my friends still kept telling me all the plot twists. Mm -hmm. I managed to finally, I think, read The Order of the Phoenix. And then from then on, uh, I was reading all the books as they were published in English. But certainly there, there were some problems on the way. Like I, I wasn't, I think, able to successfully read The Goblet of Fire, but then the next one I was already able to, and uh, my strong friendship with this, uh, with this friend who, who was spoiling the plot and who knew English very well uh, was a great motivator. So yeah, that's, that's uh, part of the story. And a par uh, one thing that I, I believe helped me a lot um, to acquire uh, like better knowledge of English. And then Another key point was um, when in my high school, I went to um, uh, 
other kinds of private English lessons. Because up until high school, so mostly during my junior high, I was going to extra English classes that were like traditional classes. You had a textbook and of course, there were also some a mix of Polish and native speaker teachers. We had some activities, but still it was kind of more conventional approach. Um, and then in high school, I went to a different method of teaching English and learning English, uh, which uh, was related to something called the Kalan method. It wasn't a pure version of this method, but it was kind of related to the idea that basically you should learn language mostly through speaking and acquiring a new vocabulary while simultaneously using it in, in sentences and also making your responses kind of automatic. So maybe mimicking a little bit like how young children learn English. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so the teacher was uh, correcting us if we made mistakes, but at the same time, uh, the teacher required constant um, speaking and a constant formulation of sentences with various vocabulary and then some you know, discussions and so on. Um, so that method is very heavily focused on speaking um, and kind of trying to help you to make your speech more automatic. And um, also the modification of the Kalan method was uh, that they encouraged us to discuss uh, in more depth um, various points that we wanted to make, not only having automatic uh, responses. Um, that really, really helped. And that was what gave me like confidence to, to normally use the language and speak and, and know that I can, um, yeah, I can manage and where I go. Uh, so then after my undergraduate studies, I went uh, also to the UK to study. But to be honest, I mean, of course, going to the UK was helpful, but it was not groundbreaking for me because uh, for me, the kind of turning points, I think, were successfully being able to read a long novel, such as very thick Harry Potter books, especially the latter books were quite long. Mm -hmm. And the second turning point was uh, this uh, method of um, focusing on speech rather than conventional learning from a, from a book. Interesting. Interesting. So methods and uh, how the language is taught as well as like books can be very strong yeah. motivators. Yeah, very interesting. So, yeah, mm -hmm. so of course. I mean, in the UK during the studies, uh, my English certainly improved, and uh, I certainly, you know, learned all the academic English. And and uh, yeah, maybe before going to the UK, I didn't know how to write uh, like academic uh, type of um, essays that well. But it wasn't exactly a problem of language. It was more. Um, how you write in English and how you are supposed to write uh, in academic English, uh, which is also about the logic of constructing your other argument and so on. Um, so it's, um, it's, it's, it's a mix of language skills and academic skills, I would say, but uh, it wasn't uh, like pivotal for me in terms of uh, the, the like basic language skills that allow you to to actually do almost anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. that's, that's very true. And, and speaking of languages, you also learned and mastered Japanese after English and your Japanese is very good. Why did you to decide to learn Japanese and why did you decide to major in Japanese studies? Mm, right, thanks. Uh, so um, I majored in Japanese studies only in one of my three main degrees, actually. So uh, my undergraduate degree was in uh, like comparative cultural studies. And so this was, was in Poland, yes? This was. Yeah, that was in, in Krakow, in Poland, yes. Uh, so that was not focused on uh, on Japanese. I mean, I had some Jap early Japanese lessons there, but it wasn't um, like focused on that by any means. Um, however, because I kind of started with Japanese there, then I decided to carry on. <laughs> uh, and I majored in Japanese for or rather in Japanese studies, because it wasn't Japanese linguistics, uh, language was only a part of the studies uh, in Oxford, um, in St. Anthony's College, or more precisely in the Nissan Institute uh, for Japanese studies. So there, um, so uh, I majored for my master's in uh, Japanese, and then for PhD uh, already, I uh, moved to uh, the management track. So why I decided to learn Japanese, um, it has to do uh, a lot with my interest in like uh, global history. Um, I basically felt that I really want, so at, at the time I was going to my undergraduate studies, I really wanted to major in um, history and to cover some aspects of global history. I wasn't sure what, I had various ideas. Um, I still remember that in my final year of uh, high school, my idea for like big research uh, in history that I could do as a student was to uh, compare history textbooks from various countries. Interesting. Because mm -hmm. I really felt uh, a lot of anger and irritation uh, that uh, all our history textbooks were very limited in terms of what they covered from outside like Poland and Europe. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like learning only about ancient China and later about Mao and that's it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this kind of mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Big gaps in, um, in like global history. Uh, so I really, really wanted to learn about that. And uh, I thought that, well, surely in other, it really differs between countries in how history is presented and wouldn't that be, wouldn't it be interesting to compare that? Uh, so I came with that idea to uh, university, but then I was disillusioned <laughs> because uh, in my city there really weren't many specialists of um, global non-European history uh, in the history department or even in various philologies. Um, they were some, but very few. And in general, the history department had hardly anybody who could speak the language of like non-European place uh -huh. and uh -huh. research that place. Um, so I really felt that, you know, if you do history, it's necessary that you um, work on sources in uh, the original language uh, that you shouldn't only rely on some English sources, yeah. whatever. Um, so 
uh, already at that time, even before I kind of abandoned history, uh, <laughs> I was, I was uh, really thinking that I want to learn some non-European language and specialize uh, in history of that place or do some comparative studies. But anyway, I go into this global history. And in order to do that properly, not like some people I could see in the Department of History in my city, mm -hmm. uh, I would like to uh, learn the language. And actually, I think my first ideas were like extremely crazy <laughs> or ambitious, however you call that. But I thought, all right, so let's start with Japanese and then I will learn Chinese. And then, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm young and I thought it's easy and <laughs> easy but doable. Now I think it would be quite hard unless you are very talented or very devoted to learning languages. Uh -huh. Uh, so I never really went beyond Japanese in terms of like non-European languages so far. Uh, but uh, basically why Japanese? I mean, we had also like a um, limited choice of like additional languages that we could learn at the university in Krakow in my city. So um, I think at the time when I was choosing um, the selection I had available was uh, Hindi, Arabic, and Japanese. And, just three. Uh, yeah, just three. Of course, they were more, but uh, like the ones that were directly easily accessible to me uh, in the program I was in uh, were those. Uh, and even Chinese, I think there wasn't like a Chinese uh, language studies as such. It was just like a newly established uh, Institute of Confucius. Uh, that was created back then and it was like on the other side of the city <laughs> so so anyway <laughs> I was uh, trying to choose from these three languages uh, which were available and uh, mm, I think they were you know a little bit of, of uh, various influences uh, because some of my friends and my current husband they told me go for Japanese <laughs> and <laughs> and I was thinking about Hindi because I was really into Bollywood movies at that time. <laughs> but then, I mean, Hindi is maybe um, slightly less useful in a sense uh, because uh, oftentimes if you interact with people in India, uh, first of all, many of them can speak English. Um, so it's not necessary. Uh, to uh, know, I mean, it's nice, but it's not, you know, absolutely essential to know that. Right, know, right. Thing. And also, India is such a big country, such complicated place with so many languages that actually learning Hindi doesn't mean that you will be able to use a local language wherever you go in India, mm. because there are so many other languages that, uh, depending on the place you go, might uh, might be more important. That's um, true. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, um, it felt potentially interesting, but also potentially less of a practical choice, I guess. While Japanese, I think is if you get involved with Japan, it is more useful because many people in Japan don't speak English or don't speak uh, good enough English. So then knowing the, uh, the Japanese can really help you um, get access to, you know, like research interview participants or, uh, or arrange without hassle your daily life or, or whatever. Um, 
yeah uh, so that is one thing and then arabic i think it also has a little bit of a problem maybe in a different way but like hindi that uh arabic of course uh is used by so many people in so many different countries that are very uh, different from each other and that have many very um different dialects so you kind of have to commit to some particular dialects and um, again, it's not as universal as you might think uh, initially. So mm -hmm. in that sense, Japanese is kind of, of course, there are some dialects, but in principle, knowing like standard Japanese allows you to speak with anyone in Japan, that aside is... from very, very minor groups of people. Very that are true. Maybe, mm -hmm. uh, maybe, you know, yeah for some reason are too much into their dialects. <laughs> but, very, very true. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, so, mm, yeah. Interesting. So your kind of um, research and studies in Japanese led you to Asia. Um, I think I heard that you um, uh, traveled for about one year or perhaps six months in Asia during a gap yeah. year. Tell us about your experiences traveling across Asia. Uh, yeah, so, yes, yeah, so I was first learning Japanese and only, and being interested in many areas of Asia, actually, because I think I'm basically interested in the whole world. It just, <laughs> <laughs> for, for some reason, Asia felt particularly compelling because of, of extremely old civilizations. So I think mm -hmm. in my mind, it was, uh, like when I was interested in global history and uh, frustrated with Europocentric view of history, um, I was thinking like, come on, yes, there are those big uh, uh, civilizations in Europe, long history and so on, but, but equally or, or sometimes even longer, depending how you, um, how you count uh, and how you compare that, uh, they are equally old and interesting civilizations, especially in many areas of Asia. So uh, what stupid idea it is to only study in depth about European civilizations. Mm -hmm. Like Roman and Greek and etc. Yeah. So mm -hmm. even though I am also very appreciative of other areas of the world, like, you know, I, I'd love to like learn more about uh, South America or, or other places. Um, I guess because of my kind of history angle, I was naturally drawn to kind of areas with very old civilizations which are not Europe. <laughs> <laughs> so non-European ancient historical places. <laughs> it doesn't mean that I don't appreciate Europe. I certainly do. It's just I felt I already was learning about that at school, but why wasn't I learning about other places? So mm, it's that indeed. Yeah. And having actually come to live in Japan, did you experience any culture shock? Mm, okay, so that is related to that uh, travel that I still haven't really talked about. Um, so the first time I went to Japan was during this longer travel that we did uh, with my husband. Um, as a sort of gap year of, of half a year gap, half a year gap. <laughs> <laughs> Six month gap. <laughs> yeah. uh, so during that time, I, because I was already learning uh, some Japanese before, 
and um, yeah, I had some input about what Japan is like. Of course, um, many things were surprising, but still, um, like I was not like fundamentally surprised because uh, I already learned some things about the the place. Uh, so it was more like small little things that uh, constitute uh, like cultural shock for me. Uh, for instance, um, uh, yeah. So, so it's similar to the cultural shocks I um, experienced like in the UK where I was always saying that my main cultural shock was that they have two taps <laughs> with water instead of one. Oh, <laughs> uh, <right>. so, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Of course, there were many other uh, things but uh, this was somehow the most uh, like standing out and uh, similarly in Japan um, I really felt strange that many people uh, were asking me where I'm from I, I said Poland and the typical answer is Samui <laughs> it's cold <laughs> <laughs> well indeed Poland might be colder than some areas of Japan however we were in Japan in winter and uh, uh, and we were not in the northern Japan, but more southern parts. And uh, because of that, like no places had central heating, of course, uh, which uh, houses in Poland do. And so I was really, I, I felt like a cognitive dissonance and a little bit of a shock that everybody is telling me that Poland is cold, while in winter at home you feel very comfortable with central heating and you can enjoy your life at home <laughs> in a t-shirt. But in Japan, I was freezing and constantly under blanket or, you know, trying to warm myself up, even though people were telling me, oh, but your country is cold. <laughs> so I guess that was, that was uh, some sort of um, daily life cultural shock. Mm, so small things that kind of stand out. Or... Yeah. Yeah. So and, I was, uh, yeah. I say shock because that is something that surprised me. Mm. Uh, so maybe other things were also, you know, very new and interesting and unusual for me, but maybe they did not surprise me as such because I had some sort of heads up from my <laughs> previous uh, learning about uh, Japan and other prior countries. knowledge about what the country is like. And um, so, so living in Japan right now, you are doing research in um, startups in Japan and India. Tell us, why did you decide to research startups? Why? Well, Japan, we already know. So why you are interested in Japan, we know. But why did you decide to compare Japanese startups with startups in India? Hmm. So right. that's two so questions. Yeah. So why startups? Why India? Hmm. Yeah, so I think the interest in uh, looking into startups or um, in general into various um, like ventures, uh, smaller ventures, uh, newer ventures started, um, especially um, in, in countries that interested me, so some areas of Asia, um, that dates back to uh, the first time I... Uh, left Poland and decided not to pursue history <laughs> uh, when I was in the UK uh, studying some Japanese and um, meeting many uh, new international friends uh, you know reading The Economist and uh, thinking that oh maybe I can 
uh, go beyond my interest in history because maybe I'm actually more interested in the contemporary life. Mm. Uh, so for me, before history was always this window to kind of various global issues, but uh, gradually I, I kind of moved a little bit more towards uh, the present. And I also thought that maybe more social science approach is more uh, suitable for me because I enjoy uh, kind of direct interaction with people, doing research interviews and so on. So during that time when I was in the UK, um, I remember having some Chinese friends uh, in my Japanese class and, uh, and hearing a lot of stories about how now China is becoming uh, the kind of bigger economy than Japan and a lot of stories about um, various entrepreneurs, um, both Chinese and foreign who are trying their luck uh, in entrepreneurship. And um, then I was interested to see, okay, but what about Japan? Because I haven't really heard or read, as I say, in various magazines or um, heard about that in interactions with my friends or in some cultural agencies. I haven't really heard any stories like that about Japan. So there was, uh, but I was studying that language, you know, so of course I was already invested mm -hmm. in some mm -hmm. Japan. Uh, so I was interested to see, okay, so there are so many stories about people uh, like doing some ventures in China, but what about Japan? And Japan has this image of like a big country, a big uh, company, a uh, big company country dominated by large corporations. Uh, but uh, then it would be really interesting to see uh, what's happening uh, with the smaller ventures and uh, uh, do any foreigners start ventures in Japan? Um, are there any new interesting ideas that Japanese people themselves are kind of creating um, from in a more bottom-up way rather than through the big corporations that we all know are quite powerful here. Uh, so these kind of basic um, questions and interests and and my turn to more contemporary world rather than than ancient history or, mm. or medieval or early modern history um, contributed to uh, my interest in the general topic of entrepreneurship. Uh, then I, uh, during the, this travel I had in Asia for six months, um, I was actually uh, already even before studying uh, something related to startups, I was doing more like independent research project uh, where I actually did uh, interview several uh, people, then my angle was to understand like foreign entrepreneurs um, in Japan, but also we then we, um, we with my husband, when we were traveling, we expanded to uh, learn more about entrepreneurship in other areas. So we participated in some tech conferences in Singapore. Uh, and tried to interview people there and gather some data. And um, actually I also had a role of um, like uh, some internet journalists. So we described uh, several events uh, then for the Polish press um, and tried to establish some knowledge and connections um, between Asia, which was not very um, well known uh, in that respect in Poland at that time. Um, so I was expanding my interest in, in that way. We participated also in some um, startup related events in Japan. And uh, then I thought that it would be 
uh, interesting to carry more serious research about that uh, when I was doing my master's, um, because my master's was in uh, Japanese studies, but I was already, I already knew that uh, uh, the kind of cultural aspects of how um, entrepreneurial ventures work in various areas uh, interest me a lot. And uh, I would like to understand better uh, how, uh, yeah, my, my first idea was how foreigners can create entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurial ventures, but then I, I kind of abandoned that angle and, and was simply interested in how the, uh, the new and young ventures are being created in a specific place. Um, and I thought that it's a really interesting angle for uh, analyzing um, other places, other cultures uh, in a meaningful way uh, that uh, can also bring, you know, some hopefully some prosperity uh, to various people if we understand uh, that better, that can provide some information for, um, for people from different countries to understand how to enter a particular uh, market and how to maybe create their ventures there rather than relocate uh, some sort of um, yeah create a new branch of a company uh, but uh, start their own venture uh, in a given place uh, so i think it was a mix of curiosity some practical ideas and actually i was not even planning to pursue a phd when i was uh, going to my master so i think um, this kind of independent research projects and then a, a proper research project during master studies were uh, also initially envisioned as, as a way to understand better the, the world of, of practice. Um, but well, then I decided to uh, become a professional researcher. So um, I guess that story could also be told from um, in a different way, kind of emphasizing my pure research interest from the start, mm -hmm. but in reality, it was a mix and uh, I was going to master's. I was not uh, planning to go to PhD. Um, however, uh, I had uh, some uh, unpleasant uh, like traffic accident, which uh, unfortunately um, made me um, recover for quite a bit. And uh, due to, partly due to that reason, I um, I decided to uh, kind of resurrect my strong interest in becoming an, an academic uh, and go more uh, deeply into research. Um, yeah, and then I just got totally deeply into it. So even though I uh, could have at some point come back to like more uh, practical ideas of joining the workforce at a younger age, mm -hmm. uh, wanted to um yeah pursue the uh, research career great great amazing and now that you are doing all this uh, very profound research what kind of projects are people doing in startups in japan what kind of startups have, are there in japan what are they doing mm, okay so well they there are many different kinds of startups, of course, and um, well, how how to say that uh, simply? They are present in many industries. What maybe is um, 
unique about Japan is that there is a strong emphasis also from the government side or university side or large corporation side uh, to, um, to make use of um, Japan's capabilities uh, in the so-called monozukuri, like making things. Uh, so um, to maybe do startups uh, focused on like robotics um, or a certain like tangible uh, technological products, uh, because it is considered something uh, that Japan and um, Japanese companies and universities are good at. Uh, so um, there, there are various efforts to kind of promote more that side of Japanese startups. Um, but of course, there are also many, many kind of software type startups or like services offered over internet kind of startups uh, that are also being developed. Um, um, and in, in part, like with um, the interest in robotics, it is connected to um, the problem of aging population that everybody in Japan is acutely aware of. So for example, a type of startups in software uh, that are um, considered to have a big potential um, here in Japan are like SaaS, so software as a service kind of startups uh, that, for example, might help you um, manage your uh, human resources in a company better or um, take care of your accounting more efficiently. Um, and uh, that is like with robots considered to be important to a country where uh, the workforce will be shrinking. Mm -hmm. That's very um, true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So these are maybe like two flavors that, um, yeah, are simple to imagine and that are certainly mm -hmm. present among uh, startups in this country. Um, another feature of uh, startups here is um, that they do have some problems with uh, like going global. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, going to like global markets because um, Japan is sometimes considered to be uh, the so-called Galapagos <laughs> market, mm -hmm. a little mm -hmm. closed market with very high barriers to entry from uh, people not knowledgeable of, uh, in the business cultural language and ways of doing things here. Um, and yeah, indeed, the, the, there is a barrier, but it's both good and bad for the companies here because, uh, well, they have less competition and still pretty big market. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it's not so easy to simply transplant something that works in Japan abroad because the market has many of its own specificities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so that is something um, that perhaps should be known about uh, the, the startups here. However, of course, there are many, many people who are doing a lot uh, to help uh, many startups from Japan be more global. And there are uh, some interesting um, global cases as well. For example, there is a company Smart News uh, that uh, was in America or another company that also went to America that uh, did a very like cool uh, wheelchairs uh, for people who need them. Uh, so yeah, there are a number of interesting stories, but like overall, it's uh, pretty like domestic. Mm -hmm. So what is needed or 
what is popular in Japan might not necessarily be needed or popular elsewhere? I would say that it's um, probably more that the way things are being done here uh, might be kind of different enough uh, that it's difficult to simply replicate them because you, you have mm. to uh, care of your customers differently and you mm. need some uh, sort of uh, human resources who will help you uh, do things um, abroad in an efficient manner. So even if you have a great service in Japan, there are many barriers to make uh, that product a great product elsewhere. Mm. And they have a number of cases, not necessarily because the product itself is so like Japanese, but of course there might be some some aspects of that but it's also i think a lot about your operational capabilities or where does your funding come from and what are your actual motivations to go mm, with, uh, mm, very true so there are yeah. motivational factors as well as different factor other factors that uh, yeah mm -hmm. and also there is um this issue that mm, many i think this is a known problem kind of a problem um, uh, in the higher education in Japan that uh, students uh, do comparatively less study abroad than in many other countries. Um, partly the reason is the job hunting process which is very formalized and you need to engage in it from your third year in order to get the offer in your fourth year and if you are abroad then you are disadvantaged in that process oftentimes. So there are, of course, logical reasons for that, but nevertheless, um, they are, I think even the Japanese ambassador to the UK was talking about things like that in his speech, that basically, uh, basically the number of uh, foreign students from Japan who was has been gradually declining. And that, of course, doesn't help in uh, having uh, like human resources in your company that are kind of connected to, to the other areas of the world and who can um, understand well enough, like naturally enough um, other markets and also who are capable of, you know, uh, effortless communication in English and so on. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that is part of the issue. Mm -hmm. uh, that with the Japanese uh, human resources overall uh, are not as connected with uh, the yeah global societies and economies as they have been if there was a little bit more exchange and kind of direct contact mm -hmm. like meaningful and long enough yeah mm -hmm. because if you have a couple of English lessons of course that's not enough for you to establish like deep and meaningful mm -hmm. connections that works and in other countries yeah yeah skills mm -hmm. to move around so yeah I for for the question like what should Japan do, I, I think I always say uh, that it would be great simply to have more like meaningful um, educational exchanges mm -hmm. with uh, with other youths abroad in other countries. Yeah, yes. yeah just go mm -hmm. and study somewhere for a year. Mm -hmm. Very good, that's true. And um, you've told us a lot about 
Japan, like startups and uh, the higher education system there. What about your country, Poland? What is the current um, social, political, economic situation that Poland finds itself in mm. from your perspective? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm not a, a researcher of Poland. <laughs> so uh-huh. Perspective. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But, well, in contrast to Japanese students, uh, Polish students, I think, uh, do uh, go on exchanges quite a bit and are um, quite active in like getting connected to, mm-hmm. to global markets. So, mm-hmm. um, it's, um, so there would be completely different issues and there are so many like uh, issues uh, that I can think about in Poland in terms of society, but specific to students, Mm. It, it doesn't have to be about students it can be any issue yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah because it's on on various levels so i i think uh, like the bottom line is that like with ever almost every other country what i wish most for poland is simply to be more equal society uh which uh, means predominantly uh, to taking care of uh, people who are um, less well off um, as a number one thing. And I guess that that, that also applies to Japan. <laughs> and, mm, and it's true, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, simply um, Poland after the era of uh, socialism, um, of course had many like economic problems and uh, they, there is uh, like a divide between people who um, are more well off and less well off. Um, However, comparatively speaking, it felt uh, smaller of a gap than say in the UK, which is extremely kind of class divided society. And that was actually my cultural shock in the UK, the class divisions. Mm -hmm. So comparatively speaking, I felt Poland is nicer. Uh, in in a terms of overall equality and also in terms of your access if you are like a bright student from uh, not uh, very well off uh, family um, maybe you have more chances you know I, I don't know because as I say I'm not doing a proper research about those topics but uh, the big difference is that the best schools in Poland are uh, like state schools mm. uh, they are very few like private schools that would be you know better if you are the brightest person you will go to the state school uh, that is the best one in your city or in your area and then you will go to the um, public university where you don't really have to pay any tuition fee Uh, and uh, yeah if you if you are talented you will get some extra money but uh, essentially speaking there is much less of this divide that you must go to like expensive private school and uh, then people from these private schools uh, are in the higher kind of social status position not necessarily actually there is a little bit more of this basic meritocracy left however of course that divide and for the the divide between rich and poor unfortunately has also been widening in Poland so I would say trying to bridge that gap and, and having more equal society in terms of 
yeah kind of uh, wealth and class is um one thing that i wish for for poland because i felt this was in in some sense a strength of poland as compared to the more to a richer nation such as the uk uh, however, of course, there are other issues, and if we say equality, there are many other facets of that. So, um, of course, I would wish for more equality for uh, groups that are uh, dis uh, like discriminated against often in Poland. So there mm -hmm. is certainly an issue if, for instance, the LGBTQ mm -hmm. uh, discrimination, and I would very much wish for Poland to kind of overcome that problem. Uh, so um, again are these issues in other countries in in many many of yeah. them yeah yes mm -hmm. uh, japan also has it uh, however maybe with slightly different background i mean the the discrimination here is simply of a different type than the one mm -hmm. one maybe less direct yeah and the uk perhaps is the most advanced of the three but at the same time it used to be extremely harsh with all the mm. punishments that it used to have until very recently so mm -hmm. anyway the fact that they were able to make uh, a progress also gives me hope that perhaps countries like poland or japan can also make progress mm -hmm. uh, let's hope let's hope yeah accelerated way uh -huh. um, but yeah so i would think about um Equality, equality issues. I think that um, Polish students are fine in terms of their development of their kind of global connections and their interest in, in going to various places. Um, so that's not the problem. And um, then, yeah, of course, yeah, you said uh, to only mention the war if I feel comfortable. I think that's impossible. I mean, I don't feel comfortable, <laughs> but also it's impossible not to mention it. So certainly the current uh, Russian aggression on Ukraine and the war and the horrible humanitarian crisis uh, is uh, the biggest challenge that has happened uh, in recent history. And um, in that sense, uh, working towards good handling of, of the situation and yeah, working with so many refugees that are keep coming to Poland uh, is, uh, of course, number one priority. Fortunately speaking, the one thing that is quite heartening, and honestly, I never thought I will witness that in my life, <laughs> is um, that nowadays with this big... Um, uh, wave, I mean, sorry, that's not a nice word, but with the big number of um, refugees uh, coming, which is like really extremely big, it's already over one million or one and a half million in one and a half weeks mm. or two weeks since the it's war crazy, started. It's crazy, yeah. Mm -hmm. so the numbers are just incomparable to any other crisis that Europe experienced, and Poland is taking majority of those people. Yeah, yeah. So this is uh, extremely uh, serious, but at the same time, there uh, there is a lot of energy, uh, like good energy, uh, from the vast majority of the Polish population in um, w in doing their best to kind of welcome uh, the refugees. And what is really interesting is that both kind of right wing, more right wing, more left wing. Uh, politicians and groups are mostly 
working together and kind of forgetting about their differences in face of this situation. I mean, not on all the other issues, but mm -hmm. on this part of the issue. Uh -huh. uh, there, mm -hmm. there is a lot of unity that you feel, both in kind of official um, kind of groups of people and uh, among the population, because of course, population is also very divided. Uh, many people like like in many other countries like uh, in the us or wherever you have very very deep and strong divisions in the society but whether you have right-wing people or left-wing people or however else you you call them and however else you draw the exact lines which are very deep as i say uh they also like from every every side of society people are working together to uh, kind of help the refugees and to do something in this um, terrible uh, war. Mm -hmm. So that is quite heartening. I mean, in all this terrible, terrible situation, mm -hmm. uh, the sort of unity uh, that it uh, created is yeah quite amazing. So maybe that gives me a little bit of hope mm -hmm. uh, but of course, the, the the kind of size, the scale of the crisis is so enormous that it's also difficult to say that you feel, you know, very good about how <laughs> yeah, things. Of course, are. Yeah. yeah. Of course, it's it's a it's a terrible situation. And you also meant uh, we were. Uh, talking earlier and you said that um, your family in Krakow is now hosting um, a refugee a family turned refugees from Kiev yes yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, they are using uh, Google Translate um, <laughs> because <laughs> um, yeah. Russian and more Ukrainian and Polish are similar but different yes mm -hmm. yeah so similar similar enough to have some common words and understand a little bit, but to have a comfortable everyday conversation or more difficult conversation, it might not be enough. So Google Translate, uh, that, uh, Google Translate really helps. My parents are really sad that they forgot everything from school uh, of the Russian language that they used to study a little bit you never I mean, know a when a language mm -hmm. yeah yeah uh, you never know when a language will come in handy <laughs> yes yes, yes. Yeah. i guess yeah. now they are trying to remember this uh, couple of russian words but uh yeah that's about it uh however you know it's um yeah my family uh is is uh hosting uh several people but so many other uh people i directly know uh like friends family are also hosting um mm -hmm. refugees that it's it's quite astounding again mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. honestly so so many people i know from school or mm -hmm. uh, like husband's uh, family also and in, in some cases uh, they try to um kind of make available um like a old hotel that can host mm -hmm. a lot of people and mm -hmm. um, also some friends from Oxford who came back to Poland and who uh, bought like a historical, uh, like a large historical manor kind of, uh, they are again hosting uh, like groups of, I don't know how many, but many people. Wow, <laughs> amazing. They, 
mm-hmm. since they have like a bigger building. Really, there is a lot, a lot of this grassroots uh, movement to help. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. help, yeah, and and many, many people are opening their houses. So again, this is very hard. This is something that gives you a little bit of hope, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. perhaps this can be this one tiny little good thing that comes out of this terrible situation that there is strong mm. solidarity and um yeah you mentioned that um as with regard to poland you hope that it will become a more equal society a society that is more united in many ways that you, that is your vision for poland's future what about your own future where do you see yourself in the next five, ten years? Well, I don't know. (laughs) And yeah, because I'm not sure it's it's, it's really hard to say more. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, one one practical consideration might be that, you know, you get the Japanese national pension after ten years. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) um, But you will still be in Japan, yes? I don't know. Mm. Uh, perhaps yes so you know for now I don't have plans to move out of Japan Mm. but at the same time because in my life I've already uh, lived through a number of um, very life-changing events um, it's it's really hard to say you never know Mm. so I yeah you never yeah in that way we never know what to move out uh, of Japan um, currently uh, however, maybe in the perspective of my, you know, whole life, longer life, I think I do think um, about uh, potentially uh, going back to Europe at some point. But um, yeah, maybe not in the next several years. Mm, Who knows? I see. Who knows? Yeah. And do you have any advice for people who are learning English at intermediate or advanced level? How can they? enjoy the process of learning and become better at English. Right. Um, Well, so simple advice is just consume the content that you enjoy or for some reason um, are drawn to because there might be things that you don't enjoy but you have to do or you feel compelled to do. So, of course, that also really helps. But if you have something that you enjoy uh, and then you simply want to um, like read these kind of books or uh, consume that kind of content in your spare time of your own will, uh, that is probably the most ideal situation, I would say, because then you combine the pleasure and uh, learning the language. So, yeah, currently, I guess with Netflix, it's very easy to uh, consume various films or TV series where you also have subtitles in uh, the language that you are studying. So that is one great way to kind of improve both your reading and listening skills. Very true. Uh, Yeah, and then of course, uh, reading or playing games. For instance, now I'm playing a very long like Japanese game on PlayStation (laughs) that I is quite um, yeah helpful to practice in a non-invasive way mm. uh, a lot of vocab and uh, maybe sometimes it's not, not very useful for daily life attacks <laughs> 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 that you have to use <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I want to 
in my daily life, but still, you know, it is uh-huh. some form of painless uh, and even fun contact with the language. Then I, I'd say I personally really enjoy uh, good podcasts um, or audiobooks. But I, yeah, I, I'm not really listening them to improve my language just because I, I enjoy them. <laughs> so, and what are uh, some uh, what are some podcasts in English that you recommend? Oh, the one of my favorite podcasts is um, about the novels of Agatha Christie. So uh-huh. as you know, mm-hmm. my name is Agatha and I really like <laughs> Agatha Christie. Agatha. I am a huge fan. I love Agatha's Christie books. Mm-hmm. And um, there is a brilliant podcast called All About Agatha mm-hmm. uh, that um, is analy- reading and discussing and analyzing all that Agatha Christie has written, which is a lot. Mm. Uh, that's a lot mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah but the hosts are also very fun and clever mm-hmm. um and yeah it's simply really interesting if you are into that kind of detective mm-hmm. fiction um mm-hmm. but i've also been listening recently to a number of podcasts about um video games because i started during pandemic i started uh, playing on playstation as a sort of indoor hobby mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I quite enjoy uh, the discussions about video games. So recently I was listening, for example, to a podcast called The Triple Click, where three journalists from the industry are discussing uh, about various video, vi- video games and also about some uh, trends and issues in the video gaming world. Mm-hmm. Pretty interesting. Um, yeah, this has been some... Of the ones I've been that, that you enjoy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Agatha. And um, please give us some last words, words of wisdom in <laughs> Polish. <laughs> oh, words of wisdom. <laughs> what is nice? That yeah, I just say Polish. Not, yeah. Not yeah. difficult, but to think about what are the words of wisdom. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. For example, well, connected to the the war, I have been uh, listening to one a song from the 60s that is quite hopeful in its content because it's basically the song talks about the Second World War um, or the aftermath. And um, it, it says that, um, well, even though now is this horrible time and the earth is soaked with blood uh you know the new day will come uh it will come in some time we don't know when but not today Mm. Uh, so the text is quite beautiful in a sense that it's uh hope it acknowledges the situation then it is hopeful but it also says that it won't happen today so um, in that sense, it's um, also more realistic for grim times when we don't know how uh, the situation will end, how it will resolve, and when it will end. We, of course, pray that it can happen as soon as possible, but we also have to have some mental fortitude uh, for possible, you know, for, for the fact that we simply don't know how long mm-hmm. it will take. Could, could you please um, recite this, the, the lyrics you said in English and in Polish? Yes. Yeah. 
yeah so i i know i must uh, remind myself uh it goes that uh like that uh za dzień za dwa za noc za trzy lecz nie dziś it's a message that yeah Mm-hmm. maybe next day maybe in two days days time maybe next night maybe in three nights time but mm-hmm. not today mm-hmm. uh, they will come okay yeah so let's hope like you said and like uh how the song says it let's hope that peace will come soon to mm. everyone on this planet definitely let's uh, hope and let's act as much as we can yeah definitely Very true. Um, thank you so much, Agatha, for um, speaking with us, for sharing with us your knowledge and your experiences. I'm so grateful and I'm very thankful to you for finding time to be with me here today. And thank you to our listeners. Thank you, folks, for listening. And I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. And uh, thank you, Agatha. Thank you, listeners. And see you soon in the next episode, which is coming up very soon and everyone have a wonderful day and take care thank you